Good morning. This morning's reading is from 1 John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. And that's uh, 12.25 in the Church Bibles. That's 1 John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This is the word of the Lord. Sam up. Uh, uh, many of you will know Sam. You'll have known Sam for some years. He's been part of the church family for some years. Uh, I have, in fact, I've just worked out, Sam, I have known you longer than I've known anyone else in this room, because uh, Jess and my children aren't here today, and I met Sam when he came for, to university at Warwick when I was at Falls in Leamington before that. Sam is going to speak to us this morning. Before he does that, uh, let's pray for him. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for Sam. I thank you for uh, all that he is and all that you are doing in him. And Lord Jesus, I pray right now that as he comes to speak to us this morning, uh, you would uh, be unsubtle with him about your presence at work in his life. Lord, you would give him your peace. And Lord, that you would speak to him and through him and reveal yourself through your words to us all. In your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, very good morning, everyone. And firstly, can I just say it's a real privilege to be able to open the Word with you this morning. And we're going to get right into it. So, as you might know, over the weeks in the morning service, we're thinking about this epistle from John that we find towards the end of the New Testament in 1 John. And the passage Helen kindly read for us, John's message, it really comes down to us being certain us being sure that we actually have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I think John wants to, he wants to make sure that we're not kidding ourselves, we're not deceiving ourselves, and so he writes here to remove people's doubts, because at this point in the church, people were doubting whether they were really a part of it. Did they really believe? Did they know what it all meant? And so let's look together, and I'm going to look at in this in two parts, Firstly, verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to work through verses 3 through to 6. And hopefully the Spirit will reveal what it wants to say to us this morning. So verses 1 and 2, John writes, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Isn't that incredible? And it really sums up the beauty of God's love for us, that even as I look at myself in the mirror this morning, and I see a myriad of shortcomings, God still relentlessly chases after me. 
And how does he prove it? How does he stand up to the test? Well, he does it in the most blatant way possible. By drawing close to each one of us through the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and as we read in verse 2, dying on a cross as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that sound so, so good? You know, I think this epistle we get from John, it's written so it doesn't just sound so good to us. It's not just something we know in our head, but God wants, John wants it to be so good to us. It doesn't just sound so good. John wants it to be so good. You know, I don't know if any of you have ever done one of those big climbing walls at activity centers. You get put onto a harness and you kind of reach the top, there's a timer, and when you reach the top, you hit a big red button. And there's one at action stations over in the dockyard, and it's exactly the same. You get attached to a harness, you climb up, there's a timer timing you, and there's a big red button. But once you reach the top, you're about 20 meters in the air, and you've got to let go. You've got to allow the harness to lower you down. Now, growing up, I've been lucky enough to do this a couple of times at action stations. Um, but each time when I get to the top, my head sort of goes through this same battle. You know, I've stood there in the queue for about an hour, seen all my friends do it. I've seen this rope hold everybody up. Then I get to the top. Oh, what if it's not attached properly? What if it breaks this time? What if I'm going to be the one for whom it breaks? And then eventually, because I'm stood here, you, I did make it down the wall. Um, but I, caught, I, kind of, I kind of fudge it. I don't do it properly, sort of flop down the wall. Imagine like a, a conker on the end of a string. That's a bit like me kind of swinging down the wall, hitting it as I go down. I didn't, well, when I've done it, I don't embrace the descent down. I had some head knowledge that it'd be okay. In fact, it'd be completely illegal for action stations to put on a climbing wall without it being completely okay. But I still wasn't completely assured. And so although going down the hall, the wall, I kind of half-heartedly do it, not completely sure. It's a battle between my head and my heart. And I've thought about that since, and I think it really does apply to so many aspects of our lives. You know, there can really be a disconnect between what goes on in our heads and what we really believe deep down in our guts, in our souls. And when it comes to the truths of God, there can be a disconnect. We can hear a truth and think, yes, I can receive it. I can articulate that. I could even explain that to a friend who doesn't know Jesus. But to really believe in it, to really rest in it, to be able to sort of let go and allow the truth to carry you down the climbing wall of life, that, I think, is a lot harder. And I think the key to doing this and allowing it to let you down is not necessarily in acquiring lots of information, although there's a place for that. I think it's to deeply digest truths that we already know. And what greater truth to digest than, than this one we see this morning in verse 2, that Jesus Christ is an atoning sacrifice, not only for my sins and your sins, but also the sins of the whole world. And how many of us have sat in church and heard of this love and yet found ourselves calling it into question when things get tough? And if there's an antidote to that, to the fact that we know this love in our heads, but we don't really trust it in our souls, then in part at least that antidote is soaking ourselves in his word. 
soaking ourselves in his truth. So John wants us to have heart knowledge. He wants us to be confident, to have this blessed assurance that around 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died and rose again as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But how can we have this heart knowledge? How can we loosen ourselves down the climbing wall of life, confident that the rope won't snap, confident that we too are saved, included, and held up by this incredible event 2,000 years ago? That's a really hard question. And there's a lot of answers, but we're going to start today by looking at what John says, how we can be assured and know of our salvation. So now we're thinking about verses 3 through to 6. Verse 3, it starts by saying, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now, did you notice that one word keeps coming up there? It's the word know. We hear it four times in those four verses. In fact, it's such an important word that it comes up 25 times in the whole of 1 John, that we know something to be true. John wants us to have confidence that we know that we know Christ. So what John does here in verses 3 through 6 is he gives us, I think, three evidences of how we can know for certain that we have this personal relationship with Jesus if these things are true of us. There's the evidence of obedience. There's the evidence of maturity. In other words, my faith is growing. And there's the evidence of lifestyle. So let's look at obedience first. Verses 3 and 4, he says this, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now let me tell you what he's not saying here. He's not saying you're saved by obedience to God. He's not saying that, and I really do want to be clear with that. He's not saying you're saved by your works, by just doing everything that God is asking you to do. What he's saying is that keeping the commandments is a sign. It's an evidence of your salvation. And why is it a sign? It's because Christ will change us. When we enter into relationship with Christ, we do get radically changed Strongholds start to become broken. Addictions we face start to break free. Relationships that were broken start to become mended. And although we will still fall short time and time and time again, we start to walk like him. We start to love people like he did. We start to love God like Jesus did. And the scriptures say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, meaning you have a relationship with him, you believe in him, you put your trust in him. If anyone is in Christ, then he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus would have described it like this. He would have said, you've been born again. You've had a rebirth in your life. And the old things, our old ways, they've been taken away. And he's put this new life inside of you. And yet still, we have to learn to live on in the flesh in this world. And the message on this has never changed. Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this obedience, I don't think it comes because we have to. 
It doesn't come because keeping the commandments gives us salvation. That's not the case. We're saved by his grace. The work has already been done. It comes because we realize his immense love for us. That while we were still sinners, each one of us, he died in our place. And that although we still mess up, if we truly confess with honesty and run back to him again and again and again and again, he welcomes us with open arms and allows us to be born again. Now, there's been times in my life when I've really struggled to get my head around how I'm saved by God's grace. There's nothing I could do to ever be saved or to be saved more. And yet obedience is still an evidence to God of my faith. And if we look to the Bible, it can really help us. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about, and he's quite clear on how we're saved by grace and grace alone, and no works whatsoever. But then in the very same chapter, he says that we were created for good works. So good work seems to follow after the grace. The grace saves, and then God keeps working, and we want to obey. He doesn't seem to just save us and then leave us. Now he wants to come and live inside of us and help us to navigate our life on earth. And the idea isn't that it's works like a checklist that we have to do every day. And if you don't meet these four requirements, you don't pass through. No, they're commandments from God to assist us, to help us live out this life on earth. In James chapter 2, it says that faith is always seen in works. And it's, it's so important. I know I've said it before to stress. It's not the works that save us, but they come out as a result of being saved. Truth always expresses itself in our actions. Notice in verse 3, John, he doesn't say we hope. He doesn't say we wish. He says we know. Assurance comes then because we experience God's presence in our lives as we start to obey him. Now on to verse 5. John says, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. John's phrasing here makes it clear it's God who's maturing us. It's God who's doing this work to the point that we will really want to obey him. We want to do it. You know, we don't have to. We can choose to live another way. But because of his grace, we'll want to. And I've prayed this week on what actually is it? What's the evidence of a maturing love? Or what's the evidence of love being made complete, as John describes it here? And I think we can tell that God's love is being made complete and is being perfected in us when it's less and less difficult to obey God and do what he wants. And doing what he wants isn't easy. In fact, it's often very, very difficult. But when are we, if you think about it, when are we most like God? It could be when we give, because God really is a giver. And I think that regardless of the command, if, if our faith is maturing and, and I'm growing in Christ, regardless of what that command is, I ought to be loving him enough to say, okay, God, you really gave everything up for me in the person of Jesus. I'm willing to at least give something of myself up for you. And on the surface, that can sound like a really bad deal. Like why would you want to give something of yourself up? But what we're really doing here is giving up the parts of ourselves that are attached to the world, the selfish, broken parts of every one of us. And we're starting to live out our lives as God intended us to live. And in doing so and surrendering our obedience over to Jesus, all the evidence shows that we find life. 
and we find life to the full. And Jesus, he makes this incredible paradox and he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Even in the person of Jesus, we see someone struggle with obedience. I'm not saying he wasn't obedient. He was. But it wasn't always easy for him. I spoke last week in the evening about worship. And I really felt the Lord saying to me that there's a value in choosing to do something, even when we don't feel like doing it. And that's similar here. Being obedient, it wasn't always easy for Jesus. Two gospel accounts tell us he's on the cross and he's screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he chooses to go through with it. Why? Because Jesus was the ultimate model of obedience. This isn't some like distant God booming down on us, beckoning us to obey. God took on obedience himself in the person of Jesus. And he did so to the extent that he was willing to die and be crucified in the most cruel way so that we could live free of judgment and shame and in a rectified relationship with himself. And for us, obedience won't always be easy. There's there's so many things in the world today that can just tempt us, that can distract us, can lead us astray. But when push comes to shove, when all is said and done, we take a step back, we all realize this immense love that God has for us. And in it, we do find life and find life to the full. And what I think John's saying is that when you and I come to faith in Christ, not only does he save us, but his love begins to change us. It begins to control us. And it's not drudgery to obey. We obey because we love him. We get to verse six and we get the third evidence of why we can have confidence of our salvation. And that is lifestyle. The first was obedience. The second was maturity or growing in ease of obedience. The third is lifestyle. Look what he says, verse six. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. We start to pattern our lives around Christ. The metaphor walk, it really shows us that it's all about our conduct. Now, I realize that might feel really impossible. I read that verse and I look at myself and think, you know, it can be so easy to just think, why bother trying? Why even start? After all, John even says in chapter one of his epistle, if you claim not to have sin, you're deceiving yourself. But John's point is that if I'm in Christ, if I abide in him and I have a genuine faith, then the thing that I will continue to do, even when I fall, is persevere and pursue the model. And the model is Jesus. Matthew 6, 21, it says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think the thing that we love the most is ultimately what we will obey. That's what we'll chase. The question that I have to ask myself this morning and have to gently challenge you with is off the back of these verses, is that Christ? To walk as Jesus walks means our lives have to be characterized by genuine love and faith in him. We can therefore know that we are saved by living obediently, by having a faith that is maturing, by it's becoming easier for you to do what God is asking you to do. And verse six tells us that we will want to follow his example. You know, it's, it's so easy to lack confident assurance of our salvation. 
to look at the imperfections of our lives and think this is just impossible. Surely I've done something. But John is not telling us that if you love God, you'll never sin again. In fact, he's really saying the opposite. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if you say you don't sin, you're actually lying. But don't worry. Come to the Father as you are, with honesty, and confess it, and he will forgive. And then chapter 2, verse 1, he says, look, you've got this lawyer. You've got this advocate pleading your case for you. You're going to be fine. I hope it doesn't rest in the fact that we will never get it wrong. It's not a surefire hope. It certainly isn't for me, and I think most of us would agree it's not. But it rests on the fact that Jesus won't let go of us. God's love stays with us in the hard circumstances, in the darkest of places, in the hardest of times that we all go through. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. And he proved it. He stood up to the test. How did he prove it? He came close. He became the atoning sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the world. And sometimes it's in these most hard moments of our life that his presence is so tangible. It's in these moments that we start to get a glimpse of our need for a desire to just accept the gift, to just accept his love. And there's such joy, I think, that comes in digesting this single truth that we've read this morning, that we have an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's freedom. There's freedom from guilt. There's freedom from shame. You know, the world is in the business of counseling people. But Jesus, he is in the business of forgiving people. And he forgives me and you through being our atoning sacrifice. So what John's saying is we can know the love of God is implanted into our hearts by our obedience, by our growing love and maturity, and by the fact that we want to be like him. And this was such a huge thing in the early church as well, to the point where people started to call other people this. They started to call them Christian. Do you know what that term means? Christian can actually be translated to little Christ. It's like you might see a child, um, you might think, oh, he's just like his dad. Yeah, he's just like a chip off the old block he is. We're supposed to be like that when it comes to Jesus. He's the model, and we pursue the model. And some of you might be asking, you know, do we really need to worry about being confident and having assurance? Is that really all that important? Well, I think the biblical writers say that it is. Hebrews 10 verse 22, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clear from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's look as well at 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. It says, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. You know, I want to be asking myself these questions more. Am I different than the rest of the world? So John very clearly today, I think, tells us, look, if you're really a believer, if you want to receive this blessed assurance of your salvation, you'll be able to tell because you'll have become obedient. Your faith will have begun to mature, and with that obedience will have become easier over time. And that love, it will have begun to be perfected inside of you. In fact, to the point where you're going to want to be like my son. Where you're going to want to be a little Christ, a Christian. And broadly speaking, very broadly speaking, there might be two groups of people 
in here today. Some of you for whom you need this blessed assurance. And although far from perfect, God's love is being made complete in you in the most beautiful way. And your lives do emulate Christ in so many ways. So you need to receive blessed assurance from that. But blessed assurance is also blessed assurance if you're not in that boat. If you're in the boat of thinking, you know what? My life looks nothing like Jesus at the moment. And certainly for each of us, many aspects of our lives will look far from Jesus. But wherever we're at on that scale, we can persevere and we can pursue the model. And so if you're in the latter boat, this is also blessed assurance for you because it gives you the chance to gently examine yourself. And although that will be momentarily uncomfortable, it might just be the best thing you end up doing. So I'm going to pray to finish, and then I think we're going to go into some worship. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your immense love for each one of us. A love so vast and high and wide and long and deep that it went to the cross for me and for everyone listening to this right now. I pray that we would just receive this wonderful gift. And no matter what part of this journey of blessed assurance we're on, would we take heart that we don't do it alone? Would we take heart that we've got the best lawyer in town pleading our case for us? And that's yourself. In your name we pray. Amen.